0: As we now turn to God's Word, please look with me at Judges chapter 17. We are back in the book of Judges this morning. As we continue our series through this book, as we wind down towards the end, Judges chapter 17, two weeks ago, we concluded the life of Samson, the last and the greatest judge in this book. And as we'll see today, the author turns to draw some conclusions in the book. The last five chapters serve as an epilogue, an epilogue really that's broken up into two stories. We're actually going to break it up into more sections than that. But the author is drawing some conclusions, and as you'll notice with this last section and these last five chapters, that we're done with the judges themselves. We're also done with the repeated cycle that we've seen. The the, the sin and the crying out and the deliverance. And now, the focus of these last five chapters, the focus of the epilogue, is on the root issues. What is it that has caused all the sin and chaos that we've seen so far in this book? That's the focus. So, Judges chapter 17, the entire chapter... Let's give our ear and our hearts to the Word of God, for this is God speaking to us here in this place. John, excuse me, Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, "'Blessed be my son by the Lord.' And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, "'I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son "'to make a carved image and a metal image. "'Now therefore I will restore it to you.' Now when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image." And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And and Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, And the Levite was content to dwell with a man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of it. Bow with me. Oh, Father, we are blind and ignorant and hostile to you and your word by nature. As we hear your word, we can only ask now that through your sovereign power and your goodness, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that you would enable us to taste and see that you are good. We pray this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you were here back in October when we began this series, then perhaps you recall how I made the argument that Judges is important to us because although it takes place in a very different historical time and culture, the life setting is actually very similar to our own. Judges is very much like modern-day America, and as such, it has a lot of things that it can teach us accordingly. It's just a, a perfect book for our day and age, for then, as well as now, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. However, as we've made our way through the book, perhaps you know the mythological character of some of the judges has caused us to forget this point a little bit. I mean, we've seen things in Judges that we normally don't see in our day and age. We don't normally see an army of 300 defeat um, 20,000. We don't normally see a man with an ox goad defeat 600. You know, I I think, yes, uh, the leader in our land, Donald Trump, may have strange hair, right? But it's nothing like the, the magical flowing mane of Samson which enables him to, to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey or, or carry the, the gates of the city 40 miles uphill. Some of the aspects of the judges are so extraordinary. It's easy to lose sight of how similar things are now as they were then and just how relevant those things that we see in judges are to our own day and age right now. Well, in many respects, I think that's why, in some respect, that the author now turns to conclude the book with this epilogue. An epilogue that doesn't speak about the judges at all. Look at how it begins in 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim. A man. Just a man. That's who the epilogue, that's who the focus now turns to. Just a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill Israelite. That's what the author now turns to focus on. And he does this because he wants us to see that, you know, all the things that are going on were not just prevalent among the leaders of the land, but were there... And the people on the ground as well. This man, as well as the man that that opens chapter 19, kind of serve as a representation of the typical Israelite. A representation of what the people were like as a whole. And it shows us that the problems, that the moral chaos, that the evil, were not just among the leaders, but were among the everyday, normal Israelite as well. So what is it then that we see here in chapter 17? What is it that is so relevant to things in our day as we come to this man? Well, I've entitled the message after Frank Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way. I signed that title, which uh, I got from a commentary. It was not original with me. Uh, It was framed a little bit differently, but I, I assign that title because it captures not only the essence of Judges chapter 17, but it captures the essence of why this chapter is so relevant to us in our day as well. There's perhaps no voice in our culture so strong as I am free to make my own decisions. I can do what I want to do, to be who I want to be. And really, as long as I'm sincere, as long as I don't hurt anybody, as long as I don't force my opinions on other people, then who are you to judge me? Perhaps the most frightening aspect of this worldview is that it's not just limited to the secular world unbelievers alone. But this is prevalent in the church as well, which makes it all the more dangerous. What we see today is that sin is most dangerous when it masquerades as religious. Sin is most destructive when it infects our worship of God. And even when we retain the worship of the one true and living god if individual preferences rule then moral chaos and judgment are sure to follow that's what we see and that's what as we now turn to the text let's seek uh, to bring out from this story with Micah and the levite uh, the the chapter is a short one and it's really broken into two sections very naturally Uh, Two very basic storylines here. So I just have two points for us today, following this. But the first is this. The first point today that we see. The most dangerous aspect of idolatry is worshipping the right God in the wrong way. The most dangerous aspect of idolatry is worshipping the right God in the wrong way. As I mentioned... The author is turning away from the leaders and is focusing on the everyday Israelite. And really, I think the big picture here is that he's setting up like a giant mirror in the land of Israel. And he's saying, you want to see the cause of all the moral chaos? You want to see the reason for the evil around you? You want to see why God's judgment has fallen on you? You want to see who the real enemy is? You can't blame the judges, and you can't blame the pagans all around you. You need to take a hard look in the mirror. That's where the problems are. The real problem is the sin within, not the enemies without. And so that's why we're introduced here to this man in verse 1 whose name was Micah. This is. An ironic beginning because Micah, the name itself, means one like Yahweh. That's what the name means. But as we you know, go through the narrative, it's very clear that he proves to be nothing like Yahweh. He proves to be nothing like the Lord after whom he's named. And just as we've seen all along, there's kind of a personification of Israel going on here, right? Israel was called to be like Yahweh. Just like Adam was made in the image of God and called to be like God. Israel was redeemed from Egypt for the purpose of restoring the image of God in them so that they might be a light to the Gentile nations around them. But God warned them, Take care, lest you fall away, lest you have an unbelieving heart. And you become like the nations around you. And that's exactly what happened. Instead of being like Yahweh, they became like the pagan nations around them. And Micah is example 101 of this right here. One like Yahweh who really reflects nothing but paganism and unbelief. So the plot line here is that Micah overhears his mom or utter a curse over the person that stole her eleven hundred pieces of silver. If you maybe remember from a few weeks ago, eleven hundred pieces of silver—that's the same amount of money that was promised to Delilah if she would betray Samson. And so I think the authors kind of subtly, you know, tying these two narratives together. Micah, one like Yahweh, is really. Ultimately, just like the Philistines. He's a Philistine in Israelite garb. Israel and the pagans have become indistinguishable. But this, of course, was a very sizable amount of money. Uh, 1,100 pieces of silver was probably, according to our best guess, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years of salary. So, I mean, we're talking about a substand- definitely a retirement fund, without a doubt a substantial amount of money that is stolen from her. And so we're introduced to this one who's like Yahweh, but he's a thief. He stole from his own mother. But then he gets scared. He hears her utter a curse. And so he returns the money. And amazingly enough, she responds by blessing him in the name of the Lord. I guess it's one of those situations, you know, where even though your children hurt you, like you're so glad that things turn out okay that you just hugged them instead. Oh, Johnny, I know you took the car without permission and you totaled it, but you're not harmed, so all is forgiven. I don't know, but in some respects, she's so happy to have her money back that she blesses him, even though he's the one that stole it. This is backwards. She blesses him, not only for stealing, but she dedicates the silver to the Lord. And how does she do that? She commissions an idol to be fashioned from it. This is backwards. This is nothing less than open, blatant, obvious blasphemy. To dedicate something to the Lord... Which, in fact, he directly forbid, goes against his word, goes against his character. It's blasphemy. This is how we're introduced to this family and and the backward nature of things. So, not only does his stealing lead to her blessing, but her dedication to the Lord then leads to his idolatry. That's the picture we get. Things are really messed up. Things are twisted. One like Yahweh is perverting Yahweh's name and character and law. And this gives us a little picture of what sin is like, does it not? This is the typical behavior of us all. We're made in God's image. We're called to reflect our maker. But because of our love for sin. We twist God's character and His commandments, and the result is a world that's backwards. If you don't believe me, just read the news. Sin has twisted and perverted things. Of course, to an Israelite, hearing this language of a carved in metal image would be striking. Perhaps it struck you as well, because we read it earlier in our reading of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 27. A very well-known passage in Israel. Most Israelites probably had a large portion of that down by memory. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. That is verbatim, word for word, what Micah does here. A carved in metal image set up in secret or in private, in one's own house. An abomination to the Lord. This really brings out the the backwards nature of what's going on here. Micah is fearful of his mother's curse, but clearly he's not fearful of Yahweh's curse, uttered here in Deuteronomy 27. That's one frightening aspect of idolatry, when we value the words of man more than the words of God. We care more about what's going on in this life, gaining or losing what we want, or our our own personal pleasure or, or, or preferences, more than we care about the life to come, more than we care about the things that God has said. We love the things of this world rather than believing the Word of God that's what idolatry is. He values the words of his mom more than he values the words of his God. And so, what does he do? He takes these idols and he sets up a shrine. He makes an ephod, which is a, a priestly garment. In verse 5, he even ordains one of his own sons to serve as a priest in his little temple. The picture here is just the ultimate privatization of religion. The epitome of of picking and choosing, by personal preference, aspects of the faith that he desires, that he wants. Just think about the logistics here. Um, With Micah's having his own little shrine and his own little priest, he doesn't need to travel to the temple, the tabernacle. He doesn't need to go through the, the real priesthood he doesn't need to go through the rituals, through the cleansing, the necessary, the sacrifices in order to approach god. Oh, that's too much trouble. Yeah. So much just so much more easier just to have one here in my own home. To have my own temple, to have my own priesthood, to have my own custom-fitted shrine so that I can you know, it's just convenient. It's just easier. Brethren, this really gets at the heart of Israel's problem. The problem in Israel was not that they were necessarily worshipping other gods, turning away from Yahweh. No, the problem was in Israel that they were worshipping the right God through pagan means. They were incorporating pagan elements into the worship of Yahweh. Worshipping the right God in the wrong way. Worshipping according to one's personal preferences, which is idolatry. We might ask, of course, why is this idolatry? I mean, Micah is ascribing worship to the Lord, clearly. The covenant name of God is on his lips. Right? These little images aren't other deities. Furthermore, I mean, Micah seems very sincere, doesn't he? Devout. Why won't the Lord accept his worship? Accept his sincerity, even though it isn't perfect. Well, of course, one answer to that is that Micah is directly disobeying the Lord. It wasn't as if God wasn't clear in his word. Micah just chose to, to disregard it. But there's other problems and issues that come up with worshiping God according to fashioning images and, and worshiping God in the wrong way. Just recall the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. Right? The golden calf was an idol fashioned to depict Yahweh. Israel, because Moses was up on the mountain, he wasn't returning. They were worried. They're stuck in the wilderness. They wanted a God that they could see. They wanted a God that appealed to their senses. And so they created this golden calf and said, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. This is Yahweh. You see, the issue is when we form an image of God, we inevitably form it according to our own personal preferences. That's the heart of the problem. Maybe you've seen some of the old idols of the ancient Near East. Um, they're pretty grotesque because they often have this grossly exaggerated genitalia. It's because, you know, that's in Hinduism as well, uh, it's because sensuality and sex really lies at the heart of what they love. That lies at the heart of their religion. So fashioning an idol according to what's most prominent and what they most love regarding their religion. And so anytime an image of God is fashioned, inevitably we form Him in our own image. The same can be said about pictures of Jesus. Have you noticed, oftentimes, He's drawn with these big blue eyes, right? And this warm complexion and an out-extended hand. Right? Just so warm and loving and, and, and just, you know, hits you right here in the heart. Maybe Jesus was, you know, maybe He had missing teeth. Maybe He had warts on His face. Maybe He was ugly. Maybe He was short. Maybe, I don't know. No, no, He's, he's Fabio so often in our own depiction of Him. This is the Jesus like we want Him to be. But God is incapable of being accurately communicated visually in this life. Making an idol or a depiction of God distorts His character because we pick and choose the, character, the aspects about Him that we like. And that's what's going on with these little images here. That lies at the heart of God's forbidding Israel to make idols. No, you are to hear Israel, not see. Hearing requires you to sit there and receive. Seeing allows you to evaluate and make your own judgments. And that's why the commentary here in verse 6 is, all of this is a result of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Israel's religion had become a religion of personal preference. They adopted the aspects of Yahweh that they liked. Power, provision, blessing. But they discarded aspects of Him that they didn't like. Holiness, demand for strict obedience, purification in order to enter His presence, the call to live not by sight but by faith, trusting and waiting on Him. They had fashioned Yahweh into an idol. And brethren, that's where really, you know, this carries a valuable lesson for us in our day as well. Everyone doing what is right in our own eyes. That's a a badge of honor in our culture. That's something to be praised. Be who you are. Right? Be true to your inmost self. Don't let anybody tell you what to do, where to go, how you should live. Don't let anybody judge you. Only God can judge you. There's nothing more American than this, right? And furthermore, could you think of anything more descriptive of the American church as well? Sad to say. Micah's makeshift shrine certainly is primitive in form, but in substance, this is going on in churches all around us. All around us. Many in our day pay no regard how God commands us to worship Him. They worship Him according to personal preference. Many in our day don't care how Jesus said, narrow is a path that leads to life, high is a calling to follow me, The commands of God for personal holiness and obedience are serious. No, there's churches all around us that really just want to make things as easy as possible on you. Let's do a survey of what people want and we will give it to you. No judgment. This passage, in many respects, ought to be a wake-up call. It ought to be a wake-up call for, for the church in America today and how worship and how the house of God has so often been framed and molded to cater to the masses of what we want rather than what God wants. However, though, at the same time, I do want to be honest with this here. And I want to be consistent. The fact is, I, <laughs> you're not here today because you're looking for fog machines, right? You're not here today because you want to worship God through an image, right? You're not here today because CRBC is the place where your, your senses are going to be catered to and pleased. I mean, let's be honest, right? It's clear in our doctrinal standards. We believe the only proper worship that is offered to God is that which He prescribes in His Word. We hold this firmly. It is a core of our conviction. It's the core of why we do everything we do in our liturgy here. But the question must be raised then, does that mean that we are innocent of these sins? No, it doesn't. Yes, it is true that no matter how sincere we are, our worship is false worship if we are not worshiping according to His Word. But you know the flip side is true as well. It doesn't matter how obedient our worship is, if we're not sincere, that's false worship as well. We may not be molding worship according to our own personal preferences here, but think about other ways that we form God in our own image. We avoid or reject certain passages of Scripture that we don't like. We emphasize certain truths that we like, and we let others slide. We emphasize certain sins. These are unacceptable, but these sins over here, these are, these are okay in the church. We're not going to make a big deal about this we emphasize certain aspects of, of God's nature. We emphasize His love and His compassion at the expense of His holiness or justice. Or vice versa, we're all about holiness and wrath and justice and condemnation, but we forget grace and mercy and long-suffering and patience. And we say things like, well, this is what God's word means to me. This is how I obey this passage. Well, my God would, would never demand this of anybody. This is more subtle ways that we too form God in our own image. That we too worship God in the wrong way. Even just walking in here. If we walk in here with worship that is without joy, that without, without sincerity, without awe, without reverence, without humility, without gratitude, without thanksgiving, without prayer... We too sin in the same way. The truth is, there are many things that we can do, that we often do, that can lead us to worship God in the wrong way. Chiefly among them, I think, in our circles, is going through the motions when our hearts are far from Him. Even when blatant disregard for His Word, which is so prevalent in our culture, um, isn't happening on the outside, let us beware of the hard idolatry that plagues us all on the inside. This is why we too, like Israel, need a leader. We need a fit and adequate leader to rule over us and one who is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. But before we get to that, we have the second part of this narrative here. Our second point. And that is, a failure in worship brings a failure everywhere. A failure in worship brings a failure everywhere. Or maybe leads to failure everywhere. Here we're introduced to a Levite now. This is significant. We just saw a blatant illustration of false worship. Like the Israelites are shocked right here. They're falling out of their chair. But then we get a Levite. Who is a Levite? Well, he's from the priestly tribe. What are the priests? What is their duty? What is their calling? What is their place? Worship. Part of their duty was to regulate worship in Israel, to teach people the law of God. We read that in Deuteronomy 27 as well. Moses mentions. God, through Moses, mentions the Levites. Listen to them. But what's immediately out of place here in verse 8 is that we see a Levite who's journeying. He comes to Micah's house here in Ephraim. Levites were not supposed to be sojourners. Right? They were not supposed to live off the land. They were to stay in the area that the Lord allotted to them and serve as priests to the Lord, and the Lord was to be their inheritance. So right away, we see kind of like um, a contradiction. A Levite who's a wanderer? A Levite who's not content, clearly, with God's calling upon his life? A Levite who, as it's clear, is walking around looking for whatever is right in his own eyes? Micah sees this as an opportunity. He says in verse 10, Stay with me, be a father to me and a priest to me, and I will take care of you. This will be a great relationship. You serve me spiritually, I'll serve you uh, uh, provisionally. The Levite is content to dwell there. He became like one of the man's sons, and Micah ordained him there to be a little priest in his little temple. This is all playing into what will happen in the next chapter, which we'll get to next week. But for right now, this should be obvious. This is a blatant rejection outright of God's Word. The ordination of a priest by Micah? A priest in this little shrine? A Levite of all people? You know, perhaps we might excuse Micah for being a little bit ignorant, but the failures of the Levites—that's that, significant. That has huge ramifications, and this is what the author is showing us: that Israel's failure, at the heart of it, lies in its worship. Micah, the everyday Israelite, had failed in the area of worship, but the real culpability lies with the Levite. And yet the kicker of all this is what Micah then says in the last verse. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, verse 13, because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah here clearly is concerned with prosperity. That's his focus. That's what he wants. And you know, the truth could be, truth, truth. be known, the same could be said about the Levite as well. He's wandering around accepting payment from Micah to serve as priest. This is an act of rejecting the Lord uh, who was his true inheritance. He's using the priesthood as a means to capitalize financially. In fact, that happens again in the next chapter. It's his desiring for prosperity that overrules and supersedes his calling by God. Just a side note here again, we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, greed and love for money is a sure mark of a false teacher. But a failure among the spiritual leaders, whether we're talking about the spiritual leaders in Israel, the spiritual leaders in the church, has far-reaching ramifications and effects. If the Levite was out for prosperity, how much more so will be the people? If the Levite isn't concerned about true worship, it's never going to happen among the people. Here in verse 13, Micah knows that the Levites were special and set apart by the Lord. He knew that the Lord liked Levites. But again, we see another utter failure of Micah to understand and to know the nature of the God that he served. He's trying to use God to get what He wants in life, prosperity. This is piety as a means for gain. This is an attempt to manipulate God so that He can get what He really wanted in life. This is an attempt to reduce God to someone who can be contained and controlled like an idol. And Brethren, this is the polar opposite of true faith. Opposite of true faith. You know, and we see this again in our culture as well. We've all seen the TV preachers. We're familiar with the prosperity gospel, with the health and wealth gospel. Sow your seed and God will bless you, right? Say the magic words and God will heal you. Be faithful to tithe and God will pour out blessing upon you financially. We even see it in Calls to submit and obey and God will bless your life and make things work out for you. There's nothing new under the sun. The false gospel, the prosperity gospel, the false health and wealth gospel has been around for ages. And that's what we see here with Micah as well. But again, though, we may not listen. Most likely none of us listen seriously. To the health and wealth and televangelists who proclaim this message. But isn't it also easy for us to stumble in these ways as well? Do we believe that our faithfulness will merit or compel God to show us material favor? Do we think that because we're careful with our doctrine, careful with His Word, careful about worship, that God's going to keep bad things from happening to us? Oftentimes we act like it, don't we? How do we respond when life gets difficult? When suffering comes? When things don't go our way? Do we find ourselves thinking, really Lord, after all I've done for you, I'm not like one of those guys out there. I deserve better. This is a way in which we stumble with these very same sins. But, brethren, let us know true faith doesn't try to get from God what we want out of life. True faith gives everything to God so that He can do what He wants with our life. That's what it means to die to yourself. Whether good or bad, my life is yours. That's the call of our Lord and Savior. And true piety isn't going through the motions to appease God. True piety flows out of a heart that is deeply convicted, deeply convinced that God is worthy, infinitely worthy of all of our worship and service and love simply because of who He is no matter what we may or may not get in return. This episode with Micah and the Levites shows us the depth of the problem in Israel. The priests had failed to do their job and maintain pure worship. The people had false notions about the character and nature of God, not to mention their own sinfulness. And this chapter is like a giant billboard set up Israel, see that all the the sin and chaos and the depravity of this land all is flowing out of your distorted and false worship. A failure in worship leads to a failure in everything. Let us mark it down. Your Christian life will never rise above the level of your worship. And who we worship can never be separated from how we worship. The two always go hand in hand. I mean, just as a personal diagnosis here, when was the last time that you struggling with sin took a hard look at your worship? When was the last time, with besetting sin, with difficulties, with struggles, that you evaluated your worship and your approach. This is what this passage is calling us to do. Because a failure in worship leads to a failure everywhere. Well, brother, I want to draw this all to a conclusion and leave us with something to walk away with this morning. What does this have to do with us? I mean, we've made application here and there throughout, but obviously I hope you do see Uh, That we can see some of the excesses of these sins out there, but that we too need to be vigilant. And that we need to be on guard as well because of how these sins uh, uh, so often are cultivated within our own hearts as well. You know, I heard someone say the other day about a Reformed church. They said oh, they they sure acted like they had all the answers. They do act like they have all the answers. But when I got got in there, I saw that they are just as messed up as everybody else. Now let it never be known. Let it never be said of us here that we think we have all the answers. We have strong convictions, but we don't have all the answers. We are dependent upon the grace and mercy and love of our God as well. And the fact is, really, you and I are not capable, in and of ourselves, of worshiping God perfectly. It's not possible. If you know anything about your own heart, you know this is, not, this is true. If you know anything about the struggles, even just sitting here this morning, you know how this is true. You know there's always a gap between what we believe with our lips, confess, and what we practice and Cultivate in our hearts. But our hope is that though we may not have perfect worship, you know what we do have? We have the antidote that the divine author here in Judges points to as a solution to this problem. It's skipping ahead just a bit, but look at the very next verse in chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. The author is saying, Israel needs a king to regulate right worship. Israel needed a leader to open up for them, access into the holy of holies. Israel needed a ruler to subdue not just their enemies out there, but their enemies in here. And all of this points to our perfect Savior, ruler, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of His church. Jesus is the true Micah, one like Yahweh, the Son of God. Jesus came, and through His life, and through His death, and through Him giving the Holy Spirit, pouring it out upon our hearts, He purifies our worship so that we can worship Him not just in truth, but in spirit and in truth. Both go together and are inseparable. Jesus is the one who not only accomplished our eternal salvation, but He's restoring the image of God in us so that we too become little Micahs through faith, reflecting the image of our God. Jesus, too, is the one who leads us into our true calling so that we're not a wandering Levite, as it were, but we can stand confident in our our eternal inheritance and forgiveness knowing that we are salt, that we are light, that we are obedient, that we strive to perfect holiness in the fear of God, not to gain His favor, but because we already have His favor. And brethren, it's when we get this, when we understand these truths about the gospel and what Jesus is doing in and through us, even though we may still mourn our impure worship at times, this fuels our worship like nothing else. And it fuels our boldness to come in here to run to Christ in His Word, to come in here broken and humble but but confident that the Lord purifies our worship that He receives our prayers. That He delights in the imperfect worship that we offer Him. That He accepts it and is pleased with it. And that He is using it to conform us to, our, to His image and glorify His own name. Let us give ourselves to this King. Let us give ourselves to the true worship of Him. Let us give, it, give ourselves to Him, not to earn favor with Him, but because... We have His favor and His love, and it's through His perfect obedience that we are accepted in the Beloved. This is the glorious truth of the Gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We aren't sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is in Him. Let us never forget that. Well, may God give us grace grace to believe these things, to practice these things, to conform our lives according to His image, to the glory of His name. Let's pray.